It is not debated today that self-understanding is basic to all of our other understanding. That is, if we have a significantly off self-understanding, it will affect all our other knowledge. If I think that I am a bird, and so walk off a cliff expecting to fly, my own sincere self-understanding will not, in and of itself, enable me to fly. I will fall. If I think I am short, and so go running down a hallway with a low five-foot door, my own sincere self-understanding will not, in and of itself, let me pass through that door unhindered. I will run into the wall above the door and so hurt myself. If we have a significantly off self-understanding, it will affect all of our other knowledge. This is true in so many ways. If I think I stink when I actually smell fine, or if I think I'm poor when I'm actually, I have enough money and more, or I think people are staring at me when they're not. In a thousand ways, our self-understanding is at the very core of our beings and of how we then decide to relate to others. It is not debated today that self-understanding is basic to all of our other understanding. What is debated today is where a true self-understanding comes from, how it is gotten. Objective standards are only so good. Mirrors will tell you something about yourself, but not others. And you have to be able to see in order for them to benefit you. A scale will tell you so much, but what if somebody has actually switched some switch you don't know about to kilograms, and you don't know how much a kilogram is when you're standing on the thing? You see, even objective standards are only so helpful for our self-understanding. What do you think you need to know and understand in order to understand yourself correctly? I'm going to ask that one again because that's a good question. What do you think it is you need to know and understand in order to understand yourself correctly? There must be countless answers we could give to that, many of which would be true, but what is right at the core of it. John Calvin began his teaching for Christians in his classic book, The Institutes, with the observation that nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is to say true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. But while joined by many bonds, which one precedes and brings forth the other is not easy to discern. He goes on, it's certain that man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless he's first looked upon God and then descends from contemplating him to scrutinize himself. For we always seem to ourselves righteous and upright and wise and holy. This pride is innate in all of us, unless by clear proofs 
we stand convinced of our own unrighteousness, foulness, folly, and impurity. We're not thus convinced if we look merely to ourselves and not also to the Lord, who is the sole standard by which this judgment must be measured. Friends, in our study of Matthew's gospel today, we come to chapter 11, where one of the world's most famous religious radicals seems to be dissolving in doubt. John the Baptist, imprisoned for some time now, had divinely given certainty of who the Messiah is, Jesus, clouded by his misunderstanding of what the Messiah was going to do now, and even of who the Messiah really is. You can see the imperfection of John's understandings from the very beginning. So God had revealed to John who the Messiah was, that the Messiah was Jesus. But he had not revealed to John everything that the Messiah would teach. What he would spend three years teaching his followers. Or what exactly the Messiah had come to do at this time. Do you remember how even in their first interaction that we have in the Gospels, John had been confused? by Jesus' request to be baptized by him? Back in chapter 3? In Matthew chapter 3, verse 14, John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. You see, John did not understand that the Messiah had come to identify with sinners. Or in chapter 9, in verse 14, when John's followers came and asked Jesus, why don't you fast? Like, we fast. They had been told that Jesus was the Messiah, but they still didn't understand who the Messiah was the Son of God incarnate, and what time it was in redemptive history, that it was time to rejoice that he'd come before the grief of the cross, and then the rejoicing would resume at the resurrection. So John's disciples knew, and they didn't know. They understood, and they didn't understand, and their situation reflected that of John the Baptist. inspired prophet though he was knowing the messiah's identity it's jesus more mortally faithful martyr that he was and would become john participated in the ignorant assumptions of his day about who the messiah would be just a man and what the Messiah would basically do, reestablish the Davidic throne. And when the Messiah would do it, now. So here John sat in prison. As Jesus, the Messiah, wandered around the countryside preaching? What was going on? John was sure he hadn't gotten it wrong. God had told him that Jesus was the Messiah, but something simply didn't seem right. And so we come to our passage today. 
It's in Matthew chapter 11. If you're using the Bibles provided, you'll find it on page 816. Listen as I read it now. Matthew chapter 11, beginning verse 1. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Well, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent have taken it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their playmates, We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. You know, the purpose of camouflage is to temporarily conceal for a purpose. Jesus, in the early years of his ministry, temporarily concealed, he camouflaged, being the long-promised Messiah. He did that for a couple of years in order to take the disciples and to teach them first about themselves and their real needs and about who he really was, and what he had come to do, and when he would do it, and, and so much more. We'll just have to keep going through Matthew's gospel the rest of this year and keep seeing what else he teaches us about. But the hinge of the gospel is still in front of us. It's in chapter 16 when the disciples first begin to seriously understand what it means that Jesus was the Messiah. And when you have that confession by Peter, then the pace of activity picks up. But in these first couple of years of Jesus' public ministry, which is what's going on here in chapters 5 to 15. In these first couple of years, we find Jesus explaining so much. And in our passage, he very kindly answers John's questions and explains more of his own identity. He helps to clarify who John is and even who we are. That'll be my outline. Who is Jesus? Who is John? Who are we? Who is Jesus? 
Who is John? Who are we? I pray that God will make this study useful to you today. Let's look first at the first six verses about who is Jesus. Verse 1 simply gives us the setting after Jesus instructed the disciples in the passage that we considered last week. Jesus went on teaching and preaching. Look there at verse 1 again. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. This is just what we see Jesus doing in his earthly ministry. He goes around preaching and teaching again and again. That's what he does. He came to instruct and exhort. So is it any surprise that Christian churches ever since Jesus have long had a commitment to reading and preaching the Scriptures, uh, like we're doing right here, right now. This is the main thing we do when we gather. It's the same kind of ministry of proclamation that Jesus gave himself to. But while Jesus is doing that, it seems that in John's imprisonment, some kind of trouble had been stirring up in his own heart about Jesus. Look down at verse 2. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? So John had questions to Jesus about Jesus. And he asked to his disciples, because he was in prison, he couldn't go, if Jesus really was the long-promised Messiah, the, the Christ. And it's interesting that these questions had not been stirred up in John because he had lost track of Jesus but exactly because he had seemed to keep up with what Jesus is doing, he was evidently informed about Jesus' ministry, and John's ministry had been focused on coming judgment and present repentance, and he seems to assume that's what Jesus would continue then in his ministry with that emphasis. When John baptized Jesus, we see that John stresses this. When Jesus, in chapter 4, learns that John had been imprisoned in a fortress just east of the Dead Sea, we see Jesus withdrawing into Galilee. He bides his time. He wants time to teach his disciples. Then, as I mentioned in chapter 9, verse 14, Jesus was questioned by John the Baptist's disciples about their lack of fasting. And so we see the outlines of John's confusion before he ever asks these questions here. You can already see here the confusion that he had, where even like at his baptism, he didn't understand that Jesus needed to identify with sinners. He didn't understand that Jesus' mission as the Messiah included first identifying with sinners through a public confession of sin in baptism. Now, if you're not a Christian, I just want you to notice that you can know and understand and believe true things about Jesus and still not have a complete or even really an adequate view of him. So it's good that you're learning things about Jesus, but you need to keep going. You need to keep going until you really understand who he is. So get more facts, that's great. But if you really want to understand, pick a gospel like this gospel we're studying in Matthew, and read it, and read it again, and read it again. See if you can have a clearer and clearer understanding of who Jesus presented himself to be. Anyway, John sends his disciples, uh, and in verse 3 we see that John sent the basic question, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? As I say, perhaps John was wondering where the judgment was in Jesus' ministry. From what he's hearing, Jesus' ministry seems to be all mercy, 
All sweetness and light. People just keep getting healed. You know, still, there wasn't the, the rest of what he was expecting the, the ruling messiahship to be. Maybe John especially felt this because he was in prison. Why was he still in prison if the Messiah is here? Isn't the Messiah supposed to be doing justice? Isn't he supposed to be working all this stuff out? What's going on? But it's very interesting. When you look, say, at the way when John the Baptist introduces Jesus at the baptism, when you look at the kind of stuff he decides to say about the Messiah coming, um, John's own preaching is marked by judgment. So Matthew 3, verse 7, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me, so this is how, this is how John was announcing the Messiah, he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. That is part of what the Bible teaches of the Messiah will do when he comes. But that wasn't all of it. And as it turns out, that wasn't what Jesus had come to do in his first coming. So John knew who the Messiah was, but he still didn't have all that knowledge that Jesus would spend three years teaching his disciples, sort of reprogramming about how to understand the Messiah. Even if you go to Jesus' first recorded sermon, it's very interesting. In, you don't need to turn there, but in Luke chapter 4, we get the, the longest account, and he is there in Nazareth, and we see he... Uh, stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place. So Jesus chose what to read. He found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me. That's literally what the word Messiah means, anointed one. He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, and set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And you know what is super interesting? If you go back to Isaiah 61, I'm not telling you to do this, I'm just doing it in front of you. Isaiah 61 and you find that text that he was reading, that he opened to deliberately, and you read that text about the Messiah, exactly about what he had come to do, we do read there in verse 1, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he stopped the reading there, and he closed the scroll and sat down. But in Isaiah, the sentence continues on. 
and the day of vengeance of our God. He didn't read that line because that's not what he'd come to do this time. The first time he came to save. That's what his disciples had to learn. That's what John the Baptist had to learn. It seems that the Holy Spirit had identified Jesus to John the Baptist, but John still then did not automatically know everything Jesus would teach, which is where Jesus untaught and retaught what the Bible said about this coming one, the Messiah. So John was clearly puzzled. And verses 4 to 6, we see Jesus' answer to John and his disciples. Tell, tell John what you see and hear. Look at, again at verse 4. Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. Blessed is the one who's not offended by me. You know, perhaps John had heard of all these miracles that Jesus had been performing, but maybe Jesus answering like this, putting them all together in a list like this, would make John think of Isaiah. Places like chapters 35 and 61, where are, there are lists like this of things that would happen when the Messiah comes. Maybe this would, would jolt John's memory, thinking, yeah, okay, these are the passages he's thinking about. Maybe that would help John realize these very miracles were, in fact, to be the works done by the Messiah. So, the blind receiving their sight is recorded zero times in the Old Testament. And the number of people in the New Testament who do this, other than Jesus, are zero. This is a Messiah special miracle. And you see Jesus doing it repeatedly. Back in chapter 9, one famous incident of the lame walking had already been recorded. And in the chapter before that, Matthew chapter 8, we see the account of Jesus curing and cleansing the lepers. In Mark 7, Jesus gives an account of, or Mark gives an account of Jesus healing a deaf man. And I think the widow of Nain's son had just been raised from the dead right before this. So all of this Jesus summarizes at the end there in verse 5 saying, the poor have good news preached to them, which means all these things. The, the despised, the blind and deaf the unfortunate. All these kinds of people are told that with the coming of the Messiah, a new age will be introduced in which the effects of the fall will begin to be rolled back. Most fundamentally, the rule and reign of sin and death. Jesus is summarizing so many statements in the prophets, especially Isaiah. But what Jesus is not doing here is reinforcing the idea that he is the Messiah had come at this time for ruling in the, in the sense of vengeance and justice and judgment. That is not what he's come to enact this time. So Jesus is teaching John, as he had been teaching his own disciples, basically that the Messiah would come twice. That there would be a first coming to save, and then a second coming as judge. Again, if you go back to Jesus, his first recorded sermon about Isaiah 61, you know, he, he comes to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He didn't go on about the vengeance of our God. He was very clear in saying that in him the age of the Messiah had arrived. So what Jesus was doing, he was giving John the Baptist evidence for his faith. Sometimes people think that faith and evidence are opposed things. You either have faith, you believe in the absurd, or you work on evidence. Well, that's, I don't think, a good way to think. And I don't think you think about that about really any part of your life. Uh, you want evidence for everything you care about. 
and you will have omniscience about nothing you care about, and yet you will turn on that electric switch to turn on the lights, not assuming the house will immediately burn down with fire, maybe not understanding how it all works, but you know it works. You'll want a sufficient amount of evidence. So in our whole lives, we constantly are mixing together evidence. I'd like to think this is credible. Give me some reasons. And faith. I don't understand everything, but things point in this direction, so I'll go for it. So that's, that's what the Christian life is like. You have this mix of evidence and faith. And Jesus is providing some more evidence for John's faith, for his understanding of who he is. He's helping them to see. He's explaining the, the partial nature of his coming as the Messiah, which John seemed to be stumbling at. Friends, the saving mission of the first coming of the Messiah continues today with our own sharing and preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. He came as a Savior. If you're here and you're not a Christian, what we mean by that is that you were made to know God. You are not achieving the purpose of your life. I don't care if you're famous and rich. You are not achieving the purpose of your life if you don't know God. If you've not been forgiven of your sins and come into a relationship of peace with God, not one, by the way, that you're just simply at peace with because you can be mistaken, but one where God is at peace with you. And friends, you only do that through Jesus Christ. You want to come to understand him, what he has done, his perfect life of trust in his heavenly Father, his death on the cross in the place of all of us who would turn from our sins and trust in him. He, as a substitute, took the punishment that we have deserved. And God raised him from the dead. He ascended to heaven and presented his sacrifice to his heavenly Father who accepted it. And friends, he calls us all now to turn from our sins and to trust in him. And he will give us new life. That's the experience of hundreds of people sitting around you today. And we would love to talk to you about that afterwards. If you want to know more or understand more about this. Jesus came taking gracious initiative, doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. That's why he says here in verse 6, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Blessed, that means happy, because of the presence of God who is not offended by me. Are you scandalized by Jesus? Are you tripped up over his claims or by what he claimed? by the traditional expectations of the Messiah, or your own desires for everything now, immediately? Jesus' mission is tied up with his person, his identity. And Jesus' identity is the key to it all. He was the key then, and he is now. Study Jesus. Jesus is not just an empty religious symbol that you grab and fill with everything you think is good. No, Jesus really exists. He taught. He explained himself in his words, which are recorded in these Gospels, for us to learn from him what he teaches us about himself. So like John here, and like the first disciples, we need Jesus to teach us about Jesus. If you want help in that, uh, you've got all four Gospels. You've got the rest of the New Testament. You can also look at modern books where people have written ones. So we have 28 copies of Greg Gilbert's Who is Jesus over on the bookstall. And if you are here and you will deny that you're a Christian, I don't want any Christians walking over there grabbing these things, but if you will go over to the bookstall after the service and say, I am not a Christian, and you can say it politely if you want, I'm not really a Christian, you know, <laughs> or, you, or you, can, you can just say, I, I'm just unsure religiously or agnostic, or you can say you're a proud, you know, Hindu or Jew or Muslim or anyone, you know, whatever, just so you're not a Christian. 
So if you're not a Christian here today, feel free and take one of those for free. Just Who is Jesus by Greg Gilbert. It's a little short book. I think it might really help you in thinking about the, the situation. All right? And then things you read in there, if you want to talk to any of us here at church about any of it, just come back next Sunday or call us during the week. Okay? Who is Jesus? And Cornell, wherever you are, Cornell, just make sure that you don't give them to any Christians. Okay? <laughs> Thank you. We've only got 28 of them. So we need to move on to our second question. Who is John? Look again at verses 7 and following. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out to the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? Well, then did you go out to see a man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Isn't it interesting that John's question to Jesus about Jesus' identity provokes sort of the longest, clearest teaching we have on John's identity? So the disciples head out back to John with their answer, and Jesus turns to the crowd and starts explaining to them who John is. This very famous person at the time, probably more famous than Jesus at the time, who was imprisoned, and they would have seen this conversation. I don't know how much the crowds would have heard or understood what it was about. But what, John launch, what Jesus launches into is an explanation of who John is. And what Jesus basically explained is that John the Baptist is the prophesied Elijah. First, he rhetorically builds it up, you see, in verses 7, 8, 9. Three times he asks the crowds, what then did you go out to see? And that repetition emphasizes the importance of what he's saying uh, it, it's, it gets them all to look at the same question. And, and by it, Jesus dismisses a couple of reasons. In verse 7, uh, just saying it was for no reason. That's what I think verse 7 means. There were lots of reeds, lots of wind outside. That's nothing to look at. There's nothing going on here. Uh, well, nobody went out in the wilderness to see nothing. So that's verse 7. And then verse 8, Jesus dismisses the idea that John was merely a kind of Instagram celebrity. You know, a man dressed in soft clothing. Jesus was not, uh, John rather, was not there to flatter or entertain or impress. He had come with a burden, a message from God to God's people, and it was a shocking message. He was calling the most faithful children of Abraham at that time, who thought that they were good because they were Abraham's children, to do something that they all thought only Gentiles needed to do, repent. And he was calling them then specifically to change their ways and to acknowledge their sins, by being plunged in water, religiously washed, baptism, which is something, again, that only people wanting Gentiles wanting to convert to Judaism did. You only have unclean Gentiles do this. Why are you, John, walking around telling Jews to act like they're unclean Gentiles? But that was John's message. Jesus here in verse 9 said that John was a prophet and more than a prophet. Now, that was a mind-blowing statement. When he says more than a prophet, a prophet was about the highest thing a first-century Jew could think of. A prophet of God. You know, no one would outrank him. Not a Levite or a priest. 
not a high priest, not even a king. Because a prophet had a word from the Lord himself, the God of heaven and earth, the one whose promise to Abraham had carved them out of the nations 2,000 years before. What's more, there had not been a genuine prophet for centuries at that point. So when one appeared, that was amazing news. People were streaming out to hear John by the hundreds and thousands. So great was John's impact that if you read ancient historians like Flavius Josephus, there's a lot more about John the Baptist than about Jesus. There are today, even today, villages in the Middle East where John the Baptist is revered as the greatest figure in religious history. And he is followed. Of course, that's not what Jesus was saying. Uh, I do want you to follow this in the Bible. If you're open to Matthew 11, just turn back a few pages to the very last prophet in the Old Testament, Malachi. It's literally just a few pages. If you're using the Bibles provided, it's pages 802 and 803. I don't use those Bibles because I have larger print up here in my copy. This is the prophecy that Jesus was using to understand and explain John the Baptist. Jesus was using a couple of references from the prophet Malachi. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And then chapter 4, verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. These are the two prophecies that Jesus was using especially to explain who John the Baptist was. So Jesus is teaching not that John the Baptist was literally Elijah reincarnated. You know, the Old Testament prophet who we read back in 2 Kings 2.11 was taken up into heaven in a whirlwind. He's not literally saying that he's come back. But the Lord through Malachi had foretold that an Elijah-like prophet marked with the same kind of bracing ministry that Elijah had, and even dressing like him, would precede what he says here in chapter 4, verse 5, the great and awesome day of the Lord. So Jesus was saying that John the Baptist was this prophet. Interesting, in John chapter 1, John the Baptist does not even seem to understand that he was this prophet. He just knew he was a prophet. They asked him, are you Elijah? And he goes, no. Well, he's wrong. He actually was. He just didn't understand. Again, this John the Baptist. He's a good guy, gets a real prophecy from the Lord about who the Messiah is, but he's not Jesus, and there's a lot he doesn't understand, including himself. So Jesus says that he was this prophet. And what's more then, if you look in our passage in Matthew, in chapter 11, in verse 10, he even goes on and calls him my messenger, which he's getting from Malachi 3. John the Baptist is my messenger. And about that messenger, we read in verse 11 that among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet, Jesus goes on to say, the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Now, this sounds confusing to people. So let's try to be really clear. Is Jesus teaching that John the Baptist was greater than Moses and David and Elijah and Malachi, but not as great as Becky Killenbrink or Jonathan and Abby Kiesling or Nick Kim or Philip and Molly Lehman or Jonathan and Chelsea Morgan? 
Yes. That is what Jesus is teaching. Greater than all those, not as great as these. That's exactly what he means. Well, so, so help me understand that, okay? That because John got to introduce the coming age of the Messiah, the new age, but he didn't really get to participate in it much. That this age that we are in now and his privilege of ushering it in is a greater privilege than that of any previous prophet in the Old Testament. I mean, he is the last one before the king comes on. He gives the last introduction. It is the most privileged position of all. And yet, the new age itself is so great that even the least in it are greater due to the privileges that we have in it than the greatest of the old age. So he's talking about John the Baptist, but you realize even when he's teaching about John the Baptist, he's teaching about himself. He's teaching about how great Jesus is because that's what makes that age so great and that's what makes everyone who participates in his privileges greater in that sense than all of those who had gone before them who had not participated in those privileges. Jesus is the center of it all. He's the center of John's greatness and of the greater status of those in the new covenant. Because see, in the new covenant, we don't just predict his coming, but we participate in its privileges. The Messiah, the Christ, is the Son of God, and he has come for us and to teach and purchase us to live and die and rise and ascend for us. He has promised to return for us. He has given his spirit to indwell us, and even now we understand ourselves to be indwelt by his own spirit who is working in us to make us more and more like him. These are the privileges that we know. Among other things, this statement of the importance that Jesus' fulfillment is acts as an invitation to those who are hearing him that day, and I think it does to us now, to enter this very kingdom of God through Christ. So this is how any Christian here today is greater than John, who was even the greatest of the prophets, the one whom the Lord called my messenger uniquely to herald his coming. The greatness of the least emphasizes the greatness of the covenant we're privileged to be a part of by being made new creatures in Christ. And notice the completion of their work with the coming of John there in verse 13. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. His is the last prophetic message in this sense. After him, the object of all the prophecies, the Messiah, will have come. So their pointing forward work has done. Our pointing backwards work now takes over. That's what we do now, pointing what God has done in Christ. Friends, in this work-crazed city, littered with broken families and filled with people with dimming hopes, share the good news that you have about Jesus Christ. I promise it is so much better than that promotion your friend is dying for or that sweet thing that he or she wishes their spouse would say to them or the longing that they have for fulfillment in this or that hobby. I promise what you have is better. Think of the privileges that we have of knowing God in Christ. What confidence that we are, as we say in our church's statement of faith, kept by the power of God through faith into salvation. We don't have to ultimately worry about disease, war, recessions. Friends, we are confident and secure eternally in Christ. 
in this city built upon passing poles. Do you see the incredible benefit, the, the privilege that we inherit in Christ? What free and gracious humility we can experience in a place of pride through this most humble of the Lord's servants who condescended from heaven itself in love to save us. Who are you sharing that with right now? Do you realize what wonderful news that is? Maybe one of the reasons you don't share the news more is kind of like me, because you don't think about how wonderful it is enough. I'm pretty sure if I had better quiet times, I would be a better evangelist. I don't think our spiritual lives are either you can focus on yourself or you can focus on others. I think if you focus on yourself well with the Lord and the Bible, you'll do a better job focusing on others. Don't, don't take the oxygen off your own face, you know. Keep it on your own face, then put the mask on somebody else's face, right? Help yourself to help others by coming to know and relish what God has done for you in Christ. So understanding who John the Baptist is helps us to see that it was the Lord God himself who sent his messenger, and the Lord God himself in the, purpose of, in the person of his eternal son who came as our incarnate Savior. The Lord said, I will send my messenger to prepare my way. The Lord was coming in Jesus Christ. That's why you want to know who John is, because John's identity makes that clear about Jesus. Last question here, verses 16 to 19. Who are we? Who are we? Look again at verse 16. But to what shall I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. So Jesus contrasts two people who've been speaking of, John and himself. Reference there to John in verse 18 is very plain. Reference there to Jesus in John 19, he refers to himself as the Son of Man, well, the Son of Man is an amazing divine figure in Daniel chapter 7. But then he's also a suffering human in Isaiah 52 and 53. So what Jesus taught, and I think we have no history of any teaching of this from the Scriptures before Jesus, he taught he was that man, that that Son of Man was actually the same figure, that the divine Son of Man from Daniel was the suffering Son of Man from Isaiah that he was both God and man, come to suffer in the place of sinners and to be raised to new life for our justification. Jesus was known as a friend of tax collectors and sinners, which they, of course, meant as an accusation. But ironically, it was a summary of the sweetest truth in all the world. We are tax collectors and sinners, and he is our truest friend. Jesus here was condemning those who would not receive him or John. It seemed that this generation was resolute only in unbelief. They rejected John, who told of judgment, and Jesus, who told of salvation. Philip Jensen has said, it's perhaps the greatest and most insidious threat of all. It is that with two millennia of Christian history behind us, we are bored with the cross. Singing the old, old story is as tiresome and dated as the hymn tune that accompanies it. This, it seems to me, is the ultimate blasphemy. To be told that the holy God of all the world has given himself up to an agonizing death, 
to save rebellious mankind from their sins and to reply, so? Friend, if you're not a Christian, the Bible teaches that you are by nature spiritually starving. That you have a deadly thirst, but you have no taste for the living water. We are made in the image of God, but we have all of us been like this unresponsive generation Jesus was speaking to, that he condemns just by describing them. Your only hope is for God to open your eyes. Pray that he would do that. Pray that he would convict you of your sins and drive you to himself through faith in Christ. Pray God help you to accept the truth about yourself and about himself and especially about Jesus. The last sentence there in verse 19 is simply telling us that wisdom, John the Baptist's teaching, Jesus' teaching, is then vindicated. It's acknowledged. It's demonstrated. It's shown to be right by what it produces. It's works, chiefly the disciples. Uh, the disciples who were going from John's Dead Sea prison to Jesus up in Galilee and back. Uh, the disciples of Jesus who had been instructed and sent out to preach in chapter 10. Wisdom is proved and demonstrated by its works, its fruits. Jesus' own generation's non-responsiveness, was that justified? No. No, wisdom is still being demonstrated by her works. Just look around you here this morning. Child after child, young person after young person, man and woman, old and young saved by this true friend of tax collectors and sinners. Friends, we live in the grasp of two great truths. We know that the world will reject Jesus, and we know that Jesus will win. Pray that God give you the humility to know and believe and accept both of these truths as you follow Christ. We should conclude. Just to recap, what we see here is that John the Baptist presents a case study of why Jesus camouflaged himself in secrecy at the beginning of his ministry, especially avoiding the word Messiah early on, because people's expectations for the Messiah were off. They were wrong. They were kind of flattened. Not so much in what he would do, but in when he would do it, and even more fundamentally in who the Messiah was to be. In fact, Jesus understood John's identity even better than John did himself. And that was in no small part because Jesus understood who he himself was. And therefore, the complete uniqueness of John's position as his messenger, who would prepare the way of the Lord. And Jesus was, in fact, the Lord incarnate. Jesus used the time of camouflage to re-educate his disciples about what they really needed and about what the Messiah would provide and how he would do that through his death and resurrection, and what it would mean for them, what we were thinking about last week, about take up your cross. It's the kind of thing you can hear and understand only in the light of the truth of Jesus' identity, including John's true identity and our true identity. We're not going to understand ourselves correctly, apart from understanding who Jesus really is. It's right back to where the sermon began, isn't it? We're not going to really understand ourselves correctly until we rightly understand who Jesus is. Now, many of you are graduating this weekend. 
Some from high school, others from college, some from graduate school, and graduation is a wonderful time, isn't it? It's marked with knowing that you have had work successfully done, lessons learned, qualifications met, maybe a credential obtained, debt accrued. <laughs> it's an achievement that you will literally remember for the rest of your life, and sometimes you'll be given monthly reminders for several years. <laughs> but you can justly be proud of it. Very likely you have sacrificed for it, and it was worth sacrificing for. So well done. And yet, can I share with you, as one who has experienced a few graduations himself, one reflection is I compare being inducted into the class of people who hold that diploma or this degree, as I compare that with the privilege of being in this new covenant through saving faith in Jesus Christ. With every year that passes, one of them seems smaller, and the other seems greater. Every year. Approaching the end seems to clarify a lot of things. I'm a choral music geek. You might be surprised that we don't have a choir. Well, actually, maybe we have a thousand-person choir. Did you ever notice how the music's always published every week? I was only feigning when I got rid of the choir when I first got here. I was actually turning us all into the choir, a very large choir that sings a lot every week. One of my favorite conductors is Robert Shaw. One time, he was performing Bach St. Matthew Passion at Carnegie Hall, and very uncharacteristically, before the performance, he turned around and addressed the audience, and he said, that for some in the audience this evening, this will be the first time you will hear the St. Matthew Passion. For others, it will be the last time. And then with that unusually sobering thought, he simply turned and began to conduct the piece. I don't know if you know it. The opening chorus begins, Come ye daughters, share my mourning. See him. Whom? The bridegroom Christ. See him. How? A spotless lamb. O lamb of God unspotted, upon the cross thou art slaughtered. See it. What? His patient love, serene and ever patient, though scorned and truly, cruelly tortured. Look. Look where? On our offense. All sin for our sake bearing. Else we would die despairing. He came for us. Let's pray. Lord God, we pray that you would help us to understand ourselves and the truth about Jesus in a way that will bless us eternally and redound to your glory. Do this by your Holy Spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.